note to our listeners before we get started. This episode contains references and discussion about sexual assault and abuse. If you are a survivor of sexual abuse or know someone who is, we'll share a link with some helpful resources at the end. I grew up in rural Pennsylvania on a Christmas tree farm, going to a megachurch three, sometimes four times a week. On the surface, life looked like the middle-class American dream. But even if I couldn't fully grasp how dysfunctional my family was, I knew deep in my gut that I needed to get out and to go far. A week after I turned 18, I left the state, and at 21, I left the country. I never thought that I'd move back to Pennsylvania, where all that pain was right where I left it. As a photojournalist, my curiosity and love for storytelling took me all over the world. Searching for the truth became my job. And if that also meant getting to travel, meet cool people, and experience incredible things, all the better. But up until now, it's always the truth about something, or someone, or somewhere else. My lens was always pointed at others, telling their story. Now, with my first documentary, Great Photo, Lovely Life, I'm telling the most personal story possible, investigating the sexual abuse experienced in my family and community at the hands of my grandfather. I'm not just a filmmaker and a journalist. I am on the other side of the camera as a subject, as a sister, a daughter, a granddaughter. Before I started asking, nobody in my family had really talked about any of this. Everyone seemed to deal with the devastating impact silently on their own. It is an understatement to say that at times while making this film, I was overwhelmed. And at times also kind of underwhelmed. Growing up, there was so much pressure to maintain this image that we were the perfect Christian family, all while normalizing this elephant in the room, my grandfather's behavior. All that just means that sometimes after shooting or in the edit, it was strangely hard for me to even know if what we were filming was interesting or meaningful. I've always been very aware that my proximity could make some of these things difficult. So I planned accordingly. When you're a storyteller, no matter who you are, and maybe particularly when you're telling a story about trauma, the one thing you need is a trusted sounding board. Could be a therapist, mentor, a friend, or in my case, my film crew, the people making this story with me. In this episode, I'm going to sit down with two of those people, two people with roles that were essential, my co-director and editor. But the reason I wanted to talk to them was because they were essential to me, personally, in helping me tell this story, not only about what happened in my family, but also the internal and external forces that made it possible to continue for so long. Oh, and perhaps most importantly, they kept me sane along the way. I'm Amanda Mustard, and this is Trauma Town. Rachel Beth Anderson is the co-director and director of photography on Great Photo, Lovely Life. Like me, she started her career working in conflict zones and has worked in some pretty intense places across the Middle East and North Africa. And maybe that experience made her the perfect partner because she knows how to get close, but also remain an outside observer and can handle some real serious pressure. When I sat down with Rachel, my first question was this. What in the world made you want to help me with this story? I mean, I think originally it was just um, not really understanding. I mean, we didn't really know exactly what the story was going to be, right? 
But from that first time I filmed you and your mom making cookies, talking about these stories about your grandpa and about your family, and then like witnessing the dark humor Mm -hmm. and the jokes. And then we were talking about everything. I was like, this is different. (laughs) Like, I've never like witnessed this type of, you know, back and forth and just discussion. And that's inherently like why I love doing this job is because I get a glimpse into different people's lives and worlds. And I... I had a feeling from the beginning that this was going to be a really important story without having any idea of what it would evolve into or what we would go through to get it done. But I was like, okay, as long as she'll let me be around, I'm going to stick in here. So it was really like, because you feel like it's such a brave thing to go in front of the camera. I'm always internally grateful anytime anybody agrees for me to like press record and be on the other side of the camera because I am not brave enough to do that myself, which is why I'm behind the camera. Well, you know that I did not love it. (laughs) No, I know. I know. (laughs) Every shoot, I really, really didn't love being in front of the camera. But I also felt that it was really necessary. I didn't want this film to be me holding a camera up to my family. I wanted to be on the same side as them. I wanted them to know that I was, I'm going to be with you on this side during this. Despite my discomfort, like that was what was the most important to me. Mm -hmm. So whether it's the subject matter or working with me as a first timer, did you have any reluctance in coming on? Not necessarily reluctance, but it's definitely something to feel like totally out of your depth, right? You know, I think that's always in the back of my mind when I'm doing these films that I'm not a part of, like, I don't have the history of the background. So I think that was where, like, my hesitancy would come from. It's like, do I have the capacity to take on the subject matter or to be open and willing to, like, learn from the people that I'm filming? But it's also that if I am not going to be, like, the person who has firsthand experience or I'm going to have blind spots, are there enough creative people around me that can make up for that. And so for sure, like the most obvious answer to this question was like, Amanda can make up for all of my blind spots with not having an understanding. But yeah, that's definitely like, there's a variety of questions I have to go through to make sure that like, I should be the one that's taking something on or joining a team. Yeah, I mean, but that was actually what made our co-directorship so important was because I come from the other side where I was I was raised really normalized to this. Mm-hmm. And you were almost like a denormalization translator for me. Like we'd finish <laughs> filming something and I kind of we'd get in the car and I'd be like, what was that? Like, I literally didn't know if it was good, if it was bad, like because it was just me being with my family. So having you be outside kind of translating what it looked like to the outside world was really, really critical to this. So good job, you. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's also why it worked because the film took so long. I think at certain points it's like, oh, how many more years? I know that was like such a huge thing. But I think in hindsight, we've talked about this before, but it was so good that things took so long because change could happen. And also I think I really was able to understand what people were going through Mm -hmm. because I witnessed changes in dynamics that I wouldn't normally on the film that takes like a year or two to make. I got a lot of time to like soak that up (laughs) throughout this process. So I want to talk about one of the hardest things that we had to do, and that was trying to thread the needle of each person's story with all of their nuance and complexity. For example... 
there's my mom, Debbie, and my sister, Angie. Angie was abused by our grandpa, and she holds my mom responsible for not protecting her. That's when things get super complicated because my mom experienced the same victimhood as Angie. So it was really hard for her initially to hear that she may have enabled it. So what do you remember about how we were navigating that? I think the biggest thing was, um, you know, when you first started out with the film and it was really like you and mom did this together, right? Mm -hmm. You were like partners in crime. Like, but I think as soon as that little, there was like a little burst in that bubble and you could see your mom through like your sister's point of view. Mm -hmm. We became very aware that mom was going to be portrayed in a way that she might not like, even if it was honest. And we worked really hard throughout this process to make sure that both sides of the story was told, but also that the context was included because that is a huge part of it. Like you can't understand where somebody is unless you know where they've come from and the circumstances that were around the choices that they made. And so it's so easy to just say, well, Debbie should have just kept Angie as far away from possible and all of her kids as far away from possible from her dad, you know, with the suspicion that, you know, what she had gone through that it could potentially happen again. But honestly, it makes so much sense when you hear what was happening in Debbie's life that she was going through abusive relationships and she didn't have the financial support. She didn't have any support to do anything else but to like, first and foremost, find a place to get a roof over her daughter's head and her own head and to have the basic needs met. Like you have to do that first before you can think beyond that when you're just like surviving. Yeah. And that's one of the hardest things about a film like this is that everybody in my family has their own truth. And my perspective of it is trying to create this space where all of those things exist. Sure, they might clash. There might be a lot of conflicting details in them. Like, it's just, I think the biggest takeaway from this is that all of these things exist at the same time. There isn't one person that's right, one person that's wrong. These are just really, really messy, complex situations. And the only way that we're going to move past them is being able to acknowledge the reality that your truth might not look like mine. I mean, I think another one of the difficult things was, you know, how you wanted to portray grandpa too, right? You really wanted to make sure that he wasn't just othered as a monster or evil, because then you can't be held accountable yeah, yeah. Like he was the toughest one, but also the easiest one for me because like I knew enough about him that it was like, okay, we're not going to get what we want out of this man. Like he has lived this long. He is very, very sick. I'm going to be realistic about my expectations here. And so what I just want to know is like how he feels and what his memories are. I feel like I was embodying the spirit of Louis Theroux because I loved his work so much and was just like, if I just go in like that with like curiosity and, and see what happens. And yeah, I mean, it turned out to be a pretty wildly candid perspective that we got from him. And one of the gifts of that, it took the burden off of his victims to tell the audience like what had happened. Like he owned it. Like, he owned it himself. Whether he knew it was wrong or not, he certainly owned it. And that was, like, a real different dynamic that we had in this film. I think it was important for me to see how you kind of interacted with him and how the family 
was towards him before we went down, actually, because I I was able to film with him once with you mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for like the, we called it the confrontation, but that was actually not what it was. It's what people want in that moment, I think, is for you to go down and yell and scream and throw things at him, you know, when in other films you would see that. But I think the way that, as you said, like approaching things with curiosity and being there as a support for your mom was also important because your mom was still his daughter and she still felt obligations towards him. You're still his granddaughter. That's the nuance of these moments. Like you can't just remove those truths from the situation. Oh, I have a clip from that scene. Let's listen to some of it. And I'll, I'll walk you through what's happening. I just have to kind of go slow. We'll go slow, Dad. That's of fine. This, this side of my- so mom and I showed up at his assisted living center and we were sitting outside and I was just taking some pictures of them. <laughs> no, you look great. Honey. Uh-huh. You really do. Yeah, I'm whatever. You do look great right now, Mom. You do, honey. You're, you're terrific. If you only knew what I've been through. All right. Will you look up at her for a second? So what have you been through? And then my mom and I started what we came to do, to play him messages from some of his victims. The first message was from my sister, Angie, and he kind of apologizes. Sometimes we do stupid things, and I, I have to admit that I was many times very stupid. So thank you for leveling with me. It's wonderful. But then my mom plays a message from one of his former patients, who was just six years old when he abused her. He took the life, the spirit, this little girl that affected that little girl for the rest of her life. And he didn't have the right to take that. It wasn't his to take. It was, it was soul crushing. And his tone totally changed, almost throwing a silent tantrum. He's reluctant to even hear it, but when he does, he has nothing to say. We were so nervous. I know. It was so stressful. But I mean, like, we, we pulled it off. And I was so I was so mad at myself that I started crying. But honestly, in that moment, it hit me, like, the weight of what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And it was also this moment that he was going to know that I knew. And I, I knew. I knew that was the last time I was going to see him before he died. And people have a lot of feelings about me hugging him at the end. But the point of this is like, this is the experience of, of being in the, in the molten hot core of this. And it isn't convenient. It isn't what you expect. So if anyone's got beef with it, suck it. (laughs) (laughs) I think by the end of the film, if you make it through the whole thing and you see all the complexities, it will make complete sense as an audience member to why that moment happened in the way it did, why you gave him a hug, why your mom is nervous about him moving around and not being protected, you know, as he gets older. Like all of this to me made so much sense that these moments were still happening. And by the end of the film, hopefully that's what a viewer will understand as well. Yeah, I don't know. It was whether it was like compulsive and what he said afterwards where he's like, oh, you still want to hug me? I think that is so fascinating that I didn't expect because that is like a little acknowledgement of like, you know who I am. So obviously I was a panic attack mess in that scene. What was it like for you? Because you'd been on the project for years at this point and you had never met him. So I'm very curious what was going through your head. I really feel like, you know, working in the places that we have, like being in these hostile environments, being in conflict, like I think that almost like prepared me for filming with grandpa because you have to just psych yourself up knowing like I'm doing this for 
like a reason, like I have a job to do. And that was like what I was hyper-focused on the entire time. But I really think that it ended up being one of the strongest, most telling scenes that we were able to capture. So I really want to talk about the whole ethical approach to me reaching out to the potential victims uh, slash survivors. Now, I know my therapist would remind me that this isn't an inherited responsibility, but as his granddaughter and as someone who knew the pain of not having their own abuse acknowledged, I wrote these letters hoping that it, A, would give them some acknowledgement and B, see if they wanted to be a part of the process. What do you remember about all that? You know, I think at the beginning, it really was like trying to like investigate, like we really wanted to like put the pieces together. That's what drives us as journalists. But I think as soon as we stop to think about it, it's like, but these are real people and we don't know where they're at in the process of like their life, right? Like that was a huge decision to make to actually send those out and to reach out to people that had potentially been affected by your grandfather. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it was, it comes down to like, I think the whole ethos of the whole production where it was like, let's not do any further harm Mm -hmm. than already exists. So there was like a way that we dealt with each other and with the team and with everybody involved to hopefully allow that to continue where this is only about healing in every single sense of the process. I think that the role of an editor is to take all the pieces and put it together into something that makes sense, not just logically, but emotionally. And hopefully it affects people and changes the world in some small way. For Tyler H. Walk, the editor on Great Photo, Lovely Life, what that actually meant was going through days worth of raw footage, boiling it down to two hours and doing that all in less than a year. But honestly, the gift of having Tyler on this film was so much more than being a fantastic editor. Because in addition to thinking about pacing and emotion, beginnings and endings, Tyler had the perspective of being an ex-evangelical Christian himself. That meant that during the edit, we could share a side-eye or all-knowing glance that was a relief to not have to explain. A quick disclaimer, I want to acknowledge that the same faith that caused me a lot of pain as a kid is the same faith that brings a lot of genuine healing and comfort to others. Both are valid, but I'm going to be speaking from my personal perspective. The church and all of its wrappings played a huge part in my upbringing and in my family's story, for better or definitely for worse. Same for Tyler. So despite some initial caution, Tyler told me that religion is what made this project so appealing to him. I mean, at first it was like, oh no, a pedophile documentary. I don't know if I can do this, honestly. You know, it's been done before. Also, I don't know if I can sit with a story like that. But the fact that, like in our first conversation on Zoom, I remember you were there, Rachel was there, and you talked about not wanting to paint him as a monster. I thought that was fantastic. But the thing that really sealed the deal was you wanted religion to play a role in this. And I thought that was great that we were both interested in addressing the role that Christianity had to play in this story. That really piqued my interest. Do you mind sharing a little bit about what the role of Christianity has played in your own life? Sure, sure. I mean, I was raised uh, Christian, Protestant, evangelical. Generally, my family comes from a very Christian background, lovely people, you know, singing songs in church and all that stuff. Uh, But it was really my youth group that I think uh, caused the most negative impact. It was a lot of just like feelings of guilt around sex and like literally burning in hell. And 
stuff like that that is really like traumatizing and like what what okay this is actually happening and once i'm starting to have you know sexual thoughts and having sexual interactions with people it's like oh my god i'm going to burn in hell that's not healthy that's not healthy so they you know i quit church and it's been you know recovery ever since so i take that into the films that i work on and this was definitely a big one yeah, and, and my experience was very similar. Like, my family was always deeply religious. I think my grandfather was the one that started it. And we don't dive too hard into the specifics in the film intentionally because it's not about that. But I was a very obedient child and believed what my parents were telling me. And when we started out in kind of like normal church, just like a normal brother in Christ you know, Bible stories church. And then we moved to kind of like a mega church. It was like a very politicized mega church that, you know, was very focused on purity culture, very focused on the rapture and the end times. And it kind of just kept me in years of fear. Like I was raised like scared of everything. So I think the hardest thing that I knew I could figure out with you specifically was how do we hold this specific religion accountable for the ways that it enabled my grandfather, but not disparage it for the ways that it was actually very helpful to people? Because like, if my grandpa is your dad, you don't have like a great moral guide to your life. Like you were raised in a very, very warped mindset on a lot of fronts. So I think that my family leaned really heavily on faith to have a kind of moral compass in life. And I also think it gave them a reason to keep living. Like I'm not sure a lot of them would have made it this far without something to believe in. So holding both of those things in the same hand is has been tough, but it's you know, it's like anything else in this film. Mm -hmm. And we talked a lot about wanting to avoid that sensationalism, but not at the expense of reality. I mean, there are so many ways you can get information across and quote unquote attack something in a film or make a point in a film. You can do it through text. That's like the easy, if you didn't get the point of the film, here's some text. You can get some talking heads, some sit down interviews of people saying, here's the problem and here's what's wrong with that. And here's a solution, you can do that. You can also use verite, and I think that that's where my heart really goes a lot of times, is real world filmed stuff, not sit down interviews. You know, I don't really like the talking heads. I like to make sure that the verite footage, the real footage that's shot out and about, is used first, and then if we need to fill in some gaps, yeah, let's get somebody in there to take us from one scene to the next. But you had so many great conversations with your mother, with your sister, with everybody who'd been affected by Bill, and inevitably religion would come up. And I think that the best thing you can do in a scenario like this is let them speak for themselves, but give the viewer a lens to look at what they're talking about through. So we had you, the main character, you know, the protagonist here, right? Going through looking at your family. That was the lens that we were looking through. So we understood where you stood on religion. That also adds to the lens. So whenever we hear anything about religion, boom, we were looking at it through your lens. And so we would see a comment made by your mother about you know forgiveness through that lens and have a little bit of skepticism instead of having your mother talk and then showing a professional saying here's what's wrong with forgiveness you know that just doesn't have the same emotional impact that it would if we would go through through you 
So going with the verite, we took this approach where we really listened to the story tell us what it needed to be, instead of shoehorning this narrative in. But that wasn't always easy. And I think one of the scenes that was tougher for us to kind of figure out was the one where I disclosed my assault. To be clear, this wasn't an assault by my grandfather. It was a guy I knew, the boyfriend of a friend. And when I told them what happened, they just victim blamed me. This is me talking about it in the film. It's just knowing that they do not think that they did anything wrong. What's still missing is, is just, just that acknowledgement, you know? Of, of like, it happened, you know, from the people that were involved. It, it fucking happened. And not having that is just the gift that keeps on giving, truly. I did not put that clip into your little basket for a very long time. Like, I kind of, there were a couple things that I intentionally withheld just to see how far the edit would get without it. And then I kind of allowed myself to be like, I think we do need this. So that was one of them. And that was the only kind of like video diary I had ever recorded. I watched the TV show, I May Destroy You by Michaela Cole. And it kind of did destroy me and like gave gave me like quite an emotional reaction, which was very productive. Like anytime something triggers me in that way, especially in this filmmaking process, I really wanted to almost like harvest the reaction because as somebody that's normalized to this, it can be hard to intentionally process things. Things are like get packed down. So when it does come up, I'm like very eager to go through that processing. And yeah, it was like this surge of anger came up around just like the general exhaustion of like what it feels like to be a survivor and that whoever inflicted the pain is just off living their life. And it's just like, what the fuck? So I was having a big what the fuck moment. Yeah, I mean, we brought it in to show my motivation. Do you think it was the scene we spent the most time kind of going back and forth on? Gosh, it is such a vulnerable moment in the film. I think you may be right that that was one of the ideas that we didn't know how it fit in your story. You know, we we would show this film to people and they just wanted more about Amanda. We want to know more about Amanda. And whenever this piece of footage showed up, it unlocked you as a character. It, sh- it said why you're doing this, your personal stakes behind it all. It just blew the whole thing wide open. And I don't know how many places we moved this scene, but where it landed, I think, is the right spot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, well, we can acknowledge how weird it was, you know, making a film about me with me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it was. Yeah, I mean, it's weird. And like the other part of it that's kind of trippy is that... I lived this over many years and obviously to weave it so masterfully as you did into an hour and 52 minutes without needing any uh, time cards telling you what year it was. We had to kind of swap some pieces around. And the longer I spent in our edit, the more I was like questioning like the actual series of events. It wasn't like detrimental. It was just trippy. I bet. I mean, that's sort of the the first thing you discover when you pull back the curtain in documentary is like scenes that happen five years from now can open a movie. Um, and, and we kind of did the same thing with this, where Bill's interviews are one of the first things you recorded are yeah. interspersed throughout the film. 
And I think it was very cool that you, I actually have a question for you about this, that one thing we shared is that we didn't want to make him out to be a monster. That's just super easy to do. We need to discuss this. We need to not just say, look at that monster. Uh, he needs to die and be put away. It's no, we need to learn about this type of person and how do we um, prevent it in the future? That's our goal here. Do you, do you feel like we found the balance of, you know, showing his true colors, but also humanizing the guy? You know, we didn't really want sympathy, but... Yeah, I think we did. And I the place in the film that I th can feel that from is another greatly debated scene was the scene of him dying. We definitely didn't want to be grotesque, but there's just something about seeing him so vulnerable at this moment. This is the moment that you're dying and your family's not there. You are alone. But the audience always has very very strong feelings about that. And we had some pushback from people being like, I don't want to see him like that. Like, this is really uncomfortable. And to me, that was like, well, that proves that we're humanizing him. That just made me say, oh, that's so much conflict in the viewer. And I think that's just valuable to have that. It's the good stuff. Yeah. What other questions do you have for me? I'm <laughs> curious. Um, well, I mean, going back to the connection in with our religion, we let Debbie, your mother, talk about forgiveness and how it's on, uh, you know, the victim to forgive. I've seen it with some people who do agree with her and say, well, it is, you do have to forgive the person who wronged you. And it made me question, like, did they miss the whole point? That, yes, you can do the work to forgive someone if it's a heavy burden. That is an important aspect of it. But that doesn't mean that the perpetrator gets away with it. So I'm not really sure my question, but like, should we have gone harder on that? <laughs> um, I think that we've gone the right temperature on a lot of things because we made a film that's like meant to be projected on. And I like that some people agree. Like, it's just that's what it is. This is life. And in the evangelical faith, there is this, you know, idea that it's compulsory forgiveness. You have to forgive or it's a sin. So that was the kind of poke that I was after in this story specifically was that I get that there is value to forgiveness, but what do you actually mean by that word? And when it's compulsory, like I don't believe that it's conducive to healing. I don't think it's the same thing. Yeah. And the, the phrase, you know, that I learned through this process is spiritual bypassing. And it is whether you're conscious about it or, or not conscious about it, which is probably more often the case. It's using the tenets of religion to kind of skirt around actually feeling some hard feelings. Um, and I heard that countless times in my upbringing was just, you know, oh, give it to God. And I just kind of wanted to acknowledge that it also led to the enablement of my grandfather. Yeah, it's pulling the wool over your eyes again and just blinding you to what actually happened. It, it's, it's not addressing what happened. So a story like this uh, that is filmed over eight years really needed some intricate weaving, which you did masterfully. But the biggest question was always, how the hell do we wrap this up? So let's listen to that last scene, starting with me reading a letter that I'd wrote and read to my mom who at this point has decided that she has hit her limit in talking about any of this. Dear Mom, we've gone months without talking and have had countless fights, moments where I wasn't sure we'd ever speak again, banging our heads against the wall to try and feel understood by each other. Even though there are many ways we will never see eye to eye, I have such immense respect for you for where you've gotten in life, despite all the odds. 
I do just want to say that like I've seen this a thousand times. I don't care to see this film anymore, but <laughs> <laughs> this last scene still like it always chokes me up a little bit because it really does feel like my personal wrap up in a way, you know, like I think I started this as an extension of trying to fix this for my mom. You know, we used to be very, very codependent at the beginning of this process. And it was such a hard earned achievement on my end personally to really like see beyond the anger and get to a place of acceptance and and compassion for my mom. The point is, is everybody in my family is carrying an immense amount of trauma yeah, like it ends on a note of compassion that I really felt I had to go through a lot to earn myself coming to peace with all of it. Wow. Um, that's. Thank you for acknowledging all that and opening up about that. I can't imagine what it felt like for you as, you know, the, the filmmaker and character in this to see this all kind of wrapped up and tied into a bow and said, that's where we're going to leave it. While we were watching this, um, I got the tingles in the back of my <laughs> neck when it feels so emotional and it feels right. This isn't a typical Hollywood wrap-up. Nobody's having a happy ending here. We have your sister saying things are going to be better for the next generation. We have you moving on and accepting who your mother is and moving mm -hmm. on from there. And then you literally moving physically mm -hmm. away from uh, your hometown. And I think all the emotions uh, that we wanted are there. It's, it's an unresolved story. And that is true to the story. Yeah. And I think it says a lot that even as numb as I am to all of this, like, I still feel that ending. Like, I'm always just like, oh, I get that little lump in my throat because uh, you nailed it. Um, well, we nailed it. I, I can't take full credit for that. We nailed it. What were some of your highlights of this process? Well, not, not necessarily in the edit, but just like the journey of making this together. Yeah, it's I feel so lucky to have worked on this project. It's so rare that you find really cool people to, to work with that allow for creativity and to test our intellect. And also, you want to hang out with after. You know, we were making something together that we're going to push out into culture, and we, our minds made that. And that feels so cool that we have some effect, uh, big or small, in some cultural conversation out there. So I just feel, I'm very grateful for the opportunity. I mean, and I'm so grateful that that to be able to work with you. We were just on the same page, and we could have fun doing it. We, we really did. We were, it was just four of us. And we should shout out our wonderful AE, Sarah, Sarah. Wasserman. Yeah, Sarah Wasserman. Oh, she God. was fantastic. Oh, and Joseph Beebe, our writer, hailing from Canada. Yeah, it was mostly just the five of us on a Zoom. Yeah, definitely. Definitely was. Oh my gosh. is a production of Rock Creek Sound. The executive producers are Ari Saperstein and Ellen Weiss. Noah Camuso produced and mixed the series. Our producer is Jen Wilburn, and music was generously provided by Dan Deacon. A very special thank you goes out to my real family, my film family, to all the friends who supported me through this journey, including the guests on here, and to HBO for trusting me and giving Great Photo Lovely Life a home. Last but certainly not least, a most profound thank you to the person who helped me process and navigate all of this, my therapist, Erin. To access resources as a survivor of sexual assault or as someone struggling with unwanted attraction, please visit greatphotolovelylife.com resources. All opinions in this podcast are mine and mine alone. 
If you want to hear more of what's rattling around in my brain, sign up for my newsletter to follow what I'm up to, like new film projects and the photo book I'll be publishing in 2024. To check out my personal photography work or to support a little queer artist like myself by buying a print, visit amandamustard.com. I'm still Amanda Mustard. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>